Thank you very much, Sila. Let's uh, keep that open, shall we? Have a look at that in a few moments, and let's pray for God the Holy Spirit to help us understand and respond. Father God, we thank you. You are a God that speaks, that words are precious to you, and words are powerful to us when they come from you. And so we pray that you will speak, open our ears and hearts to hear and listen and be humble and respond and fill our lives with your presence and your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two stories from the news from Parliament this week, which I think highlight some of the issues uh, in our reading tonight about how difficult it can be if you're working for a powerful person. So there were a number of junior staff in government this week who've reported a culture of bullying within Parliament from MPs and ministers and so on. Uh, And uh, an investigation has begun into that, quite rightly. And, of course, more widely, the rise of the whole Me Too movement suggests that the bullying of junior staff by people who have power is all too common in many workplaces as well. So there's, there's that problem there. Then there was also the news of the untimely death this week of Jeremy Hayward, uh, aged just 56. He was described, if like me you'd never heard of him, as the most powerful man in government that we've never heard of. And apparently he, he went into the civil service in 1983 uh, and worked his way through, and he served in the cabinet offices or the ministerial offices of no f- fewer than four successive Prime Ministers, Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, David Cameron, Theresa May. Uh, one newspaper described how he had this ability to, uh, to win the trust of each Prime Minister. They came in thinking uh, that he would be not someone to be trusted, a civil servant, um, and then realising that actually he was on their side. And an ability to um, support each one in succession that he worked for, that were in authority over him, and yet to speak up when he felt he needed to. Great skill. Ecclesiastes, this book, this, this wisdom book of the Old Testament, uh, the word, the name means the teacher, has been taking us on a little tour of real life. We've looked at things like life and work and pleasure over the last few weeks. And we've looked at how we've to live with realism in this world, recognizing that that much of it is quite frustrating. And tonight we're going to look at this question of, of work, especially if you're under the authority of someone else and someone who's not always perfect. If sometimes you look at life and think, well, it's not fair. Right doesn't seem to prevail. We've seen, if you've been here the last few weeks, a key word for the teacher is this word, hevel. It's uh, translated in our version, meaningless. It came up three or four times there, didn't it? Um, but actually, a, a better translation in this particular case would probably be to translate it as breath or vapor, uh, or simply as anything that's short-lived or momentary or temporary, we might say. So it's rather like the, the breath you breathe out on a cold morning. It's there and then it's gone. And that idea of of the frustration in life, the teacher traces it back, the ideas here go right back to the beginning, to Genesis, to chapter 3, and the frustration, the the vanity of life this side of the fall, where Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and things like frustration and suffering and death came in. 
So the teacher is remarkably realistic about life, isn't he? We've seen that if you've been here before. You saw it in the reading just now. This is life as we actually experience it. But he's also very positive about life. Uh, So it's there in verse 15 of our reading, the last verse, where he says, uh, get on and enjoy life. Eat, drink, enjoy all the good things God gives us. That's what life's about. And there are no fewer than seven of these. They call them the enjoyment or the joy passages of Ecclesiastes. So it's not all just realism. There's a tremendous positive thing here too. And that's the context for what we're going to look at tonight uh, in the rest of the reading. The context of joy of a life lived under God. So that background of living joyfully, the teacher's going to help us with the, the real world questions of this passage about authority and about working under those kind of people. If we live and work under the authority of someone else, and it might be a parent, it might be someone at school, it might be a, um, a, a boss, it could be, of course, our government. How do we respond if that leadership is not always, because it won't always be as it should be? That's the question. And he deals with this topic under really kind of two sections here. Uh, the first one is from verse 2 where we started through to the end really of verse 8. And then from verse 9 to 14. The first section is about being wise, especially with our words. Be wise about words. And then we'll look in part 2 about being wise about the wicked. Let's start with the words. Obey the king's command, he says, verse 2. That's where he starts. Obey the king's command. So he's speaking here to someone, originally, who's working in the king's court and who, it seems, if you look at the verse, had made some sort of oath to obey the king. So if you've made that promise, he says, keep your word. But does this mean that we should always obey the king or the government or the people in authority over us? Well, in a word, no. In the Bible, God's people do not always have to obey those in authority over us. So in the book of Acts, Peter, Acts 4.19, says to those that have told him not to go on talking about Jesus, he says, well, what's right? Do do we obey you or do we obey God? Who's telling us to go on speaking about Jesus. So clearly it's not always a command to obey those in authority if what they're saying is against Jesus, against the gospel, against, you might say, right and wrong. And Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 20 that we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So where it's due, give submission to those in authority. Uh, And in Romans chapter 13, Paul says a similar thing. Submit to those that God's placed in authority over you. They're acting, as, as it were, representing Jesus to you. As you submit to them, you submit to Jesus. So there are these two sides, so there's a balance here. Peter's saying we, we're not to obey where the command is to disobey Jesus, we're to obey him instead. But, from Jesus, from other places, the principle of when you're not being called to deny your faith, to make a stark right-wrong choice, it's right to submit to authority. Obey the king, as verse 2 says. And so, we've got this kind of boundary, as as it were, of of what's right and wrong, what's clearly right and wrong. 
And within that boundary is where wisdom comes in, where Ecclesiastes, the teacher, comes in. Because there might be wise and unwise things to do within the boundaries of submitting to authority. That's what we're looking at tonight. And what Ecclesiastes does, what the teacher does, this wisdom he gives us, he's saying not simply what's right and wrong, but what's right in this situation. That's what wisdom does. With this boss, with this authority, what's the right thing to do? And he gives us three quick principles um, in verse Uh, in in the first few verses, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. So he says in verse 3, don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. I've called this, keep your temper. Keep your temper. If you walk out on someone, uh, that's a sign that you've you've turned your back on them, you want no more discussion, you're disengaging. Um, So if you like, we've lost our temper. We've said, I'm I'm just walking out. And of course, it's, it's often, it's usually not the right thing to do in any conversation, any relationship, especially if it's the king, if it's the boss that you're walking out on. You're probably going to lose your job if you do that. So keep your temper. Second one, um, in verse 4, hold your tongue. Again, our version here says, sorry, half of verse 3, do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do what he pleases. The phrase, do not stand up for a bad cause there, it could well mean, actually, don't stand up for, don't persist in unwise words. So it could be things, but it's probably words there. He's saying, if you've said something that was rash or incorrect or perhaps even dishonest, don't stick to it. Don't try and defend it. Come clean. Stop speaking. Hold your tongue. You know, you might say, if you've dug yourself into a hole, then for goodness sake, don't keep digging. So, keep your temper. Hold your tongue. Thirdly, bide your time. This is verse 4. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. There's a proper time for every matter. Bide your time. You see, we live in this fallen world. Every leader will make decisions, and some will be good, and some will be bad decisions. We're fallen human beings. And when your boss does that, you're going to be tempted to say, uh, uh, you got that wrong. Can I just put you right here? I'm thinking that somehow you're going to save them from their folly. And the teacher says... Um, sometimes, often, that's not going to go well for you. A, the leader may have a reason for what they've decided that you don't know, uh, and B, they may not appreciate your wisdom. It may not go well for you. So we would say, wouldn't we, discretion can be the better part of valour. Just hold back. Wait for a better moment to maybe... Make your point. Choosing your words and when you speak them. It's a wise form sometimes of self-preservation. Unless truth, uh, justice, the gospel are at stake. In which case, it's going to be different. So whoever obeys the king's word will come to no harm. He says the wise heart will know the proper time. And we saw this principle of waiting for the right time back in chapter 3. 
in that famous poem you may have come across in chapter 3, one of the phrases there is that there is a time to speak and, do you remember, a time to be silent. That's the principle he's working out here. It can be wise, thinking about your words under authority, to bide your time. I think that's probably what's being expanded a bit in the following verses 6 to 8. No one has the power over the wind to control it. No one has the power over the time of their death. No one's discharged from service in time of war. No one who practices wickedness will escape its grip either. Seems to be saying there that whether we're a prince or a pauper... We can't see the future. We can't control the future. We can't control how long our life is going to be. And even kings who seem free from all external authority because of their power, well, they're in the grip of evil and of death itself one day. So the teacher's saying, I think, be wise with your words. Leave it to time to work things out. If your boss is making a mistake or treating you unkindly, leave it to time and the sovereign Lord will one day put it right. It's a Japanese proverb which is, kind of makes a similar point. It says, if you sit by the river long enough, one day you will see your enemy float by. It's kind of the sense here of leave it to God to sort these things out. So can I ask this? What's the most difficult thing about the people that have authority over you? I mean, it may be uh, your, the government or your boss or your PhD supervisor or your head at, work, at school. They may do a lot of good things, and we just thank God for that, don't we, for godly, for good leadership. But it may be they also are foolish sometimes or unfair. They make mistakes that affect you. And what do you do then? Well, I think the teacher's saying... Pray for wisdom to know when to speak, when to be silent, when to speak up for the right, and when just to bite your lip and wait for another time. So one extreme, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who's quoted at the head of our service sheet tonight, he was a loyal German citizen, a Christian pastor in the 1930s. He worked for the German intelligence during the Second War under Hitler, at the same time as leading uh, an evangelical movement of, of Christian leaders in non-violent resistance against the Nazis. But eventually, he decided that the evils of anti-Semitism in Nazism were so great that he and his friends had to do something to try to end the war, to end Hitler's <coughs> life sooner. And he was involved in a plot against Hitler. He was caught, arrested, um, put on a show trial, and eventually showing incredible faith to the very end, he was executed just a few weeks before the war ended. It could be that some of us will be called to acts of defiance of civil disobedience in the name of Christ. Could be. But at the moment, more likely, I think, for most of us would be that we are called to obey those that God's put in authority over us. However, sometimes difficult that will feel to obey people that are as it were representing Christ's authority to us with all of their warts and all 
You may be tempted to think that you know better sometimes than the person that you're working for. You may do. You may be tempted to say things that will be disrespectful or dishonest. We will be. You may be sometimes angry with God for allowing those who lead you to be so foolish. We may be. But in this fallen world, we are still called to honor Christ by sometimes honoring those that represent him to us as leaders. So we need to pray, don't we, for God to help us with this. Um, To serve them, to honor them, to obey them with wisdom so that we might know the proper things to do. When to speak, when to be silent. Be wise about words. That's our first thing. Second one's a bit quicker, a bit briefer. And the heading is this. Be wise about the wicked. From verse 9, that is, to the end of verse 14. See, the teacher's shown he's looked at life and he's seen examples of how unfair life can be the wicked seem to flourish the righteous sometimes don't so he he says in verse 10 he finds this frustrating it's our meaningless word again it's there again in verse 14 Uh, it's it's brief it's frustrating it's vain he said i watched it a man lords over others to their hurt and then then he says I see that someone that's been like that in this life, when they die, they have a glorious funeral, they're buried, which is a sign of being honoured in the Middle East and the ancient world, was that you had a proper burial. So they're honoured in their death. And those who used to come and go from the temple and receive all the praise of people then, they die with a good name, even though they've done so many evil things in their life. Can you see the frustration he feels here? He's saying, what's going on in this life? Wicked people get away with it and are honored and praised and thought of as good people and religious people. And then even when they die, their reputation remains that they were such clever, good, successful people. Verse 11, he gives another example of the injustice he sees. When a sentence for a crime is not carried out, so someone's done something wrong, people know that, but nothing's done about it. And again, we've seen this in public life, haven't we, as well? He says, when that happens, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong themselves. Don't you know what he means there? This happens today. The senior manager um, treats people in the company badly, but the directors who know about this do nothing. And everyone else in the company starts thinking, well, if they can get away with it, I will too. And the, the wickedness spreads. And then in verse 14... Another picture that each describes what should not be true in a perfect world, but what is true in a fallen world. He says, I see that sometimes the righteous end up with what the wicked deserve. So perhaps with shame, with poverty. And the wicked get what the righteous deserve. Riches and a great reputation. Again, we've seen the kind of thing. The the dishonest manager who exaggerates their contribution on a project gets all the praise at the end. Whilst you've been quietly working away, doing more than your part, and you've just been giving credit to those around you on the team, and you get nothing at the end. Or the student who, who cheats and gets a first, and the one who works hard consistently and honestly and just gets the two too. Or the the lad who sleeps around with girls, in the end gets the girl and marries her, 
And you who've chosen to follow God's path of purity in your relationships still remain single. It's not fair, we cry, don't we? That's what the teacher's saying. I've watched this. It's not fair. Life does not seem fair in a fallen, frustrating world. So be wise about the wicked, he's saying. Life is going to be like that sometimes. Do not be surprised. He's urging you and me, I think, to recognize life will not always seem fair. The righteous will not always be rewarded in this life, and the wicked will not always get their comeuppance. God's promised to be with us in this life. He has promised that. He's promised to be faithful, to love us, to bring us to eternity. But he hasn't promised to end all wickedness today. He hasn't promised to give us all that we want today either. And yet, here again he ends positively, in verses 12 and 13, he puts the other side of this again. He says, I've also seen this. Verse 12. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better. Again, the word, it will will be good for God-fearing people who are reverent, who fear God. So that's the good news. God does know our hearts. He does know those that love him, and he loves those that love him in response to The days of the wicked, he says, will not lengthen like the shadows. Maybe means in this life, uh, wicked people won't always live a long life. Sometimes their sins will, will fall on their own heads, but certainly in the life to come, there will be justice done. Verse 13. So it will go well for those who fear God. It will not go well, he says, for those who do not fear God. So if you're here tonight and you don't yet know God's love and mercy for you, God has sent Jesus to be our saviour. He knew that we, we mess up, we walk away from him, we've blown it, and yet he sent Jesus in his love and his mercy to die, to rise again, to bring us back, whoever we are. And if you have not yet received and found Jesus, then please Keep looking, keep searching. Ask the person you're sitting next to tonight, how do I find Jesus? What do I do to do that? To find peace with God for eternity. Because God delights to give, as he says, good things, not just in this life, but in eternity to those that fear him, to those that turn to him with faith. And if that's the truth of the gospel, that God is just, God is perfectly loving, and he will bring his people to eternity, then don't we want people here as well? Don't we want those that we pray for, that we work with in our families, to hear about this too, to come to be those that fear God and have a good future in eternity? If that's you, keep praying for those five that you're praying for if you're a regular here. And we'd also love it if, if, if you'd like to, or your small group would like to sign up to invite local people to our carol services coming up so they can hear what it means to discover God in Christ and to fear him and so have eternal life. Here's one last thought um, as we just step back from the teacher for a moment here and look at an, an even greater teacher, the Lord Jesus, who came centuries later. See, the teacher, Ecclesiastes, is giving us precious advice 
for living real life today in a fallen world. It's precious advice. Uh, And so did Jesus, actually, in the Gospels. So Ecclesiastes says, be wise about your words. Well, Jesus gave us lots of wisdom about our words too. Ecclesiastes says, uh, be wise about how you think about the wicked in this world. Whilst awaiting for justice. Well, Jesus, again, taught a lot of things about the wicked and how to live alongside them in this world. But where the teacher gives us good advice, Jesus does something even better. He gives us not just good advice, but good news. So where my words may often be flawed, mistaken, mistimed, Jesus lived a perfect life. Every word was the right word spoken at the right time. And because of my sins, my failings with my words, he died on the cross for me and rose again for my eternity. Not just good advice, but good news. Where I sin and where I disobey those in authority over me sometimes, Jesus submitted perfectly to those in worldly authority over him, the authorities that executed him, and even died at their hand on the cross to set us free. And where I was powerless to put wrongs right, to bring justice, um, to see the wicked punished and the righteous lifted up, Jesus promises one day that a kingdom will come when evil and sin will be banished and when righteousness and justice will reign. Let's pray. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life. uh, That in submitting to the powers of this world, uh, you defeated the powers of evil on the cross. And so brought us freedom and life. Thank you that you give us by your spirit wisdom to learn to speak and think and live in new ways that honor you. We pray that this week, when we're placed in difficult situations, called to submit to the authority of another, called to choose between right and wrong, between when to speak and when to be silent, that your spirit in us will give us the strength and the wisdom to do what is right and honors you. And may we be given your understanding of this world in all its fallenness, May we long for perfection, for the glory of heaven to come. May we live and pray and work for righteousness, for justice. And may we be given perseverance and courage in the face of evil. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.